This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. I would have liked to read at least the last part of chapter 5 too, but that would make our reading very lengthy. But in chapter 5, as you will recall, the Apostle has made some outstanding remarks and has developed outstanding truths concerning justification. Chapter 6 goes on to speak of sanctification. That's why it would have been well if we could read the two chapters together. Interestingly enough, however, he connects the doctrine of justification in chapter 5 and also as set forth, of course, in chapters 3 and 4. He connects the doctrine of justification with sanctification by bringing up an objection to the doctrine, an objection to the doctrine which was by no, which is by no means new to us, but which we perpetually hear and with which we are perpetually confronted, but an objection that is as old as the book of Romans itself. Even our Heidelberg Catechism addressed itself to this objection. Always the haters of God's word, and especially of the truth of justification by faith alone, have made this objection. I don't want to deal with the objection this morning so much as with its connection to sanctification. What shall we say then? That is, if we are justified by grace, and our righteousness is from Christ alone. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into his, into into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father even so we also should walk in newness of life for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. 
For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey his servants ye are? To whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Being, made, being then made free from sin, ye become the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded yourselves members, yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to sin, to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then? In those things whereof ye are now ashamed, for the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants of God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's my assignment this morning to speak to you on the relationship between God's great work of justification and his great work of sanctification. And to speak also on the difference between the two so that we do not confuse them. Many do. Many confuse them. It seems to me not so much in the interests of confusing two important doctrines because they do not understand them very well. They confuse the two in the interests of denying the sovereign 
work of God in the whole of salvation. They don't want that. Roman Catholic Church does that. Roman Catholic Church confuses justification and sanctification and really in a certain way makes sanctification first. And although they don't mean sanctification as we mean it, they want to make justification dependent upon our works so that there is first of all in God's work in our hearts an infused righteousness by which we make ourselves worthy of being justified. Much to the astonishment and chagrin of faithful children of the Reformation, the modern heresy of the federal vision does the same, the very same thing from a little different perspective, from the perspective of the conditionality of God's covenant, but nevertheless wants to put sanctification before justification. And it wants to do that because it wants to make sanctification such a work that it leaves room for us so that we are justified on the basis of our works once again. They don't teach the biblical doctrine of sanctification. They corrupt it when they make it prior to justification. Nevertheless, we must not do that. And so it's important that we understand not only the meaning of both terms, but also the relationship between God's work of justification and the subject of this conference. God's great work of sanctification. That compels me to speak as briefly as I am able to speak on the doctrine of justification, as Paul does in Romans 3, 4, and 5. The doctrine of justification is in its own right a doctrine that is worthy to be to be discussed at any conference. And I have found in the course of my ministry over the years that there is one doctrine more than any other which delights the people of God, and that's the truth of justification. God's people love that doctrine. The doctrine of justification means simply this, that God, who has chosen unto himself a church in Christ on the basis of the cross and through the power of the cross, declares legally that his people are without sin. That's the doctrine of justification in a nutshell. He says to you and to me and those who lay hold on the cross by faith, you have no sin. 
as you stand before me in the courtroom of heaven where the judge of all the earth who cannot do anything but that which is right and just declares you to be without sin. That's an amazing doctrine, an astounding doctrine, a doctrine which it is from our point of view almost impossible to believe, especially if we have an understanding of our own wickedness, of our own depravity, of our own struggle day by day with sin. If only we understand how great our sins are, how terrible, and understand them as they stand in sharp, naked contrast with the infinite holiness of God. To hear that God says of us, you have no sin. When I look at you, I don't see any sin. I don't see any. Search as I will within you and without you. I see no sin. You are before my eyes righteous. I say that's an astounding doctrine. Already as a child, I, can't, I couldn't help but be impressed with the narrative of Balaam. You remember Balaam, of course, and how he was bribed by Balak, king of Moab, to come to Moab so that Israel might be cursed. Balak was scared out of his wits by Israel. And deep down in his heart, he knew that Israel was the imposing and intimidating people that it was because God was with them. Balaam was a prophet, a false prophet, but a prophet for all that from Mesopotamia. He was hired to curse Israel. He knew that if Balaam, in the name of God, cursed Israel, he would have nothing more to fear. So he summoned Balaam promised him great wealth and treasures. Balaam, godless man that he was, took the bribe and did everything in his power to convince God to allow him to curse Israel. He was a prophet. He spoke the word of God. But he wanted to speak the word of God's curse upon his people. And so Balak and Balaam stood there together and top of a high plateau and the nation of Israel was camped just prior into, into entering Canaan in the valley below and you could see it. The tribes divided three on each side of the tabernacle and the tabernacle in the center and the smoke of the sacrifices ascending up from the altar of burnt offering. Balaam tried everything he could think of in order to persuade God to let him curse his people. Enchantments, black magic, sacrifices, pleading with God, everything. But God wouldn't let him. And so in one last desperate attempt, they moved to another mountain, not that far away, but a mountain where all you could see of Israel was the outer camp, 
the people that lived in the outer camp, the mixed multitude, that motley throng that came along from Egypt, and that was the source of all the troubles in the nation and of all the rebellion that characterized these people in the wilderness. And Balaam thought to himself, if God sees Israel at its very worst, maybe he will let me curse them. And so he tried. And this is what he said. He couldn't help it. He spoke the word of God, but he spoke like his ass spoke. God took him by the neck and shook words of blessing out of him. I have not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither have I found transgression in Israel. It's as if God said through Balaam, Balaam, what in the world are you talking about? I don't understand that. You ask me to curse this people because they're wicked. I don't see any sin in them. I examined the whole matter closely. I, who am the searcher of the hearts, have looked. I have not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Can you imagine that? Nor have I seen transgression in Israel. Why not? Because the shout of the king is among them. There was that sacrifice, and there was the smoke of it ascending up to heaven. And so Balaam could only bless. What an amazing, you know how Israel rebelled in the wilderness time after time after time. You know all the rot that arose out of that nation at specific occasions. God's word was, I have not beheld iniquity in Jacob. And this is what he says in his church through the ages. As he looks from heaven down upon his church, and he sees his church, his verdict is his own infallible, unchangeable verdict. I have not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Nor have I seen transgression in Israel. It isn't there. It doesn't exist. Upon you and me, who know so well the depravity of our own natures, to hear God say that is a wonder that ought to fill the heart of the child of God with awe all his life. Now, in order to understand that, I have to go back to paradise. When God created Adam and Eve, of course, but Adam, God created Adam as a head in his office of prophet and priest and king. He was at the top of an apex that began in the lowest parts of the creation and went higher and higher. Adam stood at the pinnacle. As God's representative of all that God made, 
prophet, priest, and king called by God to represent the cause of the triune God here in this earthly creation. And as such, Adam was the head of the human race. And Reformed theology usually speaks of that headship of Adam and especially these two, sometimes three, but especially these two ways. Adam was the federal head, and Adam was the organic head. And those two terms mean this, that in the first place, as the organic head, the entire human race came from Adam and Eve. There's never been a person the whole world who does not have his origin in Adam. And because Adam was the organic head and the whole human race was born from him, Adam was also the federal head, that is the legal head, not only of the whole human race but of the creation itself so that he was responsible for the whole human race and not only responsible but he was the one who would determine the destiny of the human race and of the creation so that what he did would have consequences for the entire creation of God, the entire earthly creation. And if you look at his fall into temptation at the prompting of Satan. From this point of view, Adam chose through the temptation of Eve and the subsequent temptation of Adam himself, whether that was through the serpent or through Eve, the Bible doesn't tell us, but the two of them decided, and Adam especially decided, that they were not going to represent the cause of God in the world anymore. Because, as the devil tried to point out to them, the requirements that God demanded of them were too stringent. There was an option available to them. And that option was this. That if they would listen to what Satan said, they would still be the head of the whole human race and still be the head of the creation, but they could do with it as they pleased and they would not have the restrictions which Satan made of that blessed law of God, which is the key to liberty. But that, those restrictions God put on them, do what I say. And it was a bold move on Satan's part because Satan was saying, in effect, and they understood that too, I can do better than God. Do what I say, and I'll give you the whole creation. All you have to do is acknowledge me as the head and not God. 
and will make this kingdom a kingdom that is just as blessed and glorious as anything God ever made, except in it you will have the freedom, quote, quote, which was really slavery, the freedom to decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. The same temptation, basically, which, with which Satan tempted our Lord in the wilderness after his baptism. And they listen. And so the consequences of their sin came on the entire human race and on the whole of the creation because Adam was the head. The guilt of it. The result of that was that the whole creation was guilty before God. I know we may have some difficulty with speaking of the guilt of inanimate creatures, but Paul speaks in contrast to this, that because of the work of Christ, the creation groans and travails, waiting to be delivered. But they have to wait till the deliverance of the sons of God. So the creation came under the curse. And the whole human race came under the curse in such a way that because Adam was the federal head, the guilt, the guilt of Adam's sin is yours and mine. You won't find that doctrine preached very frequently in this world. I am guilty for what Adam did. Yes, you are. I am responsible for Adam's choice. Yes, you are. Can I go to hell apart from anything else because of what Adam did? Yes, you can. And you must. That becomes especially real in our own lives and in our own confession of our sins when we contemplate the fact that the fountain and source of our sins is a corrupt and depraved nature. Whence cometh this depraved nature? From the fallen disobedience of our first parents, our Heidelberg Catechism says. Why should that come upon us? Because we are guilty in Adam. Paul makes that very clear in, in Romans 5, which is really, of course, the key text for this truth. Verses 12 and 13. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. And then notice, for that all have sinned. Maybe I should stop and make a comment or two about that. There are, there are theologians, interestingly enough, they date back all the way to the days prior to the sin of the door. Arminius was preaching a series on Romans in church in Amsterdam where he was ministering. And when he dealt with that text, 
He made that last expression. For that all have sinned, meaning that death passed upon us because every one of us is a sinner. That isn't what the text says or means. Later on, without even giving Arminius the courtesy of acknowledging him as the father of that notion, reformed theologians have given the same interpretation to that. Herman Ritterbus, for example, in his book, The Theology of Paul, and more recently, the professor of theology in Calvin Theological Seminary. They've interpreted that to mean that death passed upon all men because each man is a sinner. That's heresy. I understand it in a way who wants the doctrine of original guilt? I am what I am because it's my own fault. I made myself that way. You say you live in the year 2014, over 6,000 years after creation. You're guilty for Adam's sin. If you never commit a sin in your whole life, so that your life is blameless, that's impossible, of course. So if you do, you still go to hell. God says, what about that sin you committed in paradise? And that's the way the text has to be interpreted. By one man sin entered into the world, and death passed upon, and, uh, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, that is, for all have sinned, in that one man who sinned at the beginning. That's why death passed upon all men. That's the doctrine of original sin. You can search far and wide in today's ecclesiastical world and read a thousand books on theology, and it would be a strange thing if you, except for the older theologians, if you could find someone who writes currently on theology who loves the doctrine of original guilt. I tell you that if you don't believe that doctrine, and you better understand that, you can't believe in justification. And if you can't believe in justification, you can't believe in sanctification. They stand or fall together. Reformed believers who hold to the scriptures trace their sin back to their own guilt that was theirs in Adam. And that doctrine is supported by our confessions, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgian Confession and the Canons of Doyle. Now, we don't want you to misunderstand that We must not conceive of the fact that Christ sent, was sent into the world to deliver us from our guilt, even that we have an Adam, as a second 
alternate plan which God may have had. This is my original plan, to glorify myself in Adam, who would bring forth the human race freed from sin, so that this earthly creation would become man's dwelling place forever and ever. Coming under words adds to that, of course, that you could also merit heaven. I'm not interested in that for the moment. But I want you to understand that God's redemptive plan of Christ was not plan B in the purpose of God. Otherwise, I don't see how it's possible to hold to justification by faith. The truth is that Almighty God from all eternity chose to himself a people elect in Christ. And don't ever leave those last two words off when you talk about election. I heard a speech once on election and I suppose from many points of view the various elements of election were mentioned. But the speaker never emphasized Christ, never mentioned Christ. There is no election apart from Christ. Christ is the elect, the one elect, the first elect, the one who stands as God's elect servant in God's eternal counsel. And when you say Christ, you say the church, the elect church. But you understand that if that church is elect in Christ, and that it cannot be elect apart from Christ. It was before the mind and heart of God already composed of justified saints who are righteous in Christ. God's purpose was to glorify himself through Christ, his only begotten Son. Because God's purpose was to glorify himself in the highest possible way. And that's through his own son. And so, justification is a reality of the council. But it was accomplished on the cross, on Calvary. When Christ uttered the words, it is finished. All my sins were forgiven at that moment. I only appropriate that by faith, of course, and that's the emphasis of Scripture. But that's the reality. He died, in fact, for all the sins of all his people. And dying for all the sins of all his people, he earned for his people everlasting righteousness. And so, briefly, justification is a legal matter. God is a God of justice, of perfect justice. He does what is right. God is and I want to say a little bit more about that presently. God is righteous. It is all infinite 
be. And that means that everything God does, everything from creation to the end of the world and on into all eternity is in perfect conformity with his own infinite holiness. Never can God's actions be called into question. Never can God's actions be doubted as to their sincerity or moral worth. He's righteous, and righteousness means his activity in everything is in conformity with and even is the revelation of his own holiness. Now, that means, of course, that Christ is the second Adam and the Adam of God's eternal purpose. He's the head. He's the prophet, the priest, the king. And he's the head, not only federally, legally, but also organically. And God determined that eternally. Not Adam. Adam had to be moved aside as being only a picture. As in Adam all died, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Or as Romans 5 puts it in verse 12 and 13, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him who is to come. Adam was a figure. And the people of God, therefore, are the ones of whom Christ is the federal and organic head. What Christ does is what we do. What does Paul say in that gloriously beautiful doxology with which he ends Galatians 2 when he's speaking of the righteousness of faith alone? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What an amazing, triumphant doxology that was of the Apostle. You may very well make that doxology your own. It's a wonderful word of God to carry with you. I am crucified with Christ. There's that old song, you know, were you there when they crucified my Lord? maybe I was along with the mocking Pharisees that isn't the question now were you there when they crucified my Lord were you in Christ that's the question I am crucified with Christ not I stood there at Calvary and watched what was going on oh no 
I am crucified with Christ. That's Paul in Romans 6. That is what Christ did on the cross. In fact, I did. I wasn't born yet. Be that as it is. I died on Calvary. When Christ arose with power from the grave, I arose with power from the grave. Know ye not that so many as are buried with him live also with him? Of course. So that I am responsible for the perfect work which Christ performed. And being responsible for that work, I am united to Christ so that he is the organic head of the church because the church is engrafted into his body by a living faith which God works in their hearts by the Spirit that makes them one with Christ. And making them one with Christ, the life of Christ becomes theirs. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in the flesh, here in this world, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Christ, the head of the elect church. That means, and I want to stress this this morning because that's important also for sanctification. That means that Christ's suffering and death on the cross did not only accomplish the forgiveness of sins, that too and that above all, as far as justification is concerned, but much more. That's Paul's doxology too. To the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ went far, far beyond the blessedness of forgiveness of sins. You must remember Let me, let me just talk about this for a few moments. You must remember that Christ from the beginning of his life to the end of his life on earth bore the burden of the wrath of God. That creates a difficult problem. And the problem is this. If he bore the wrath of God from the beginning to the end of his life, why was it that on three separate occasions a voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. When God was angry with his Son, and when God made his Son experience that anger, how was that in the mind and soul of Christ? as he bore the wrath of God and yet had ringing in his consciousness those precious words, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. And don't forget, after all, Christ is the only one that could sing in the Psalms, the loving kindness of my God 
is more than life to me. More than life. What did he tell his disciples at the Last Supper? Now is my soul troubled, even unto death. What shall I say? Deliver me from this hour. But for this purpose have I come into this hour. Father, glorify thyself. Some of the agony that already was in the soul of Christ was there at that moment when he said, wrath of God, the wrath of his Father, whom he loved, was more than life. He killed him to know his Father's wrath. But as he drew closer and closer to the cross and finally hung in shame on Calvary's hill, it seems as if the favor and love of God gradually became weaker and weaker and weaker. And the wrath of God became greater and greater. It reached the climax in that awful cry that came from the depths of hell. I can hardly hear it as it rings from hell itself without stopping my ears. It's awful. He didn't dare to call God his father. He didn't know favor anymore. He had lost completely the consciousness of his father's love. And all he could say was, my God, my God. And so great was the fury of God's wrath, and so horrible the maelstrom of the swirling forces of darkness and hell, momentarily he even lost the reason why he was there. Why? It's so dark down here. Why? And yet, beloved, he did something at the moment when he bore the wrath of God against all the sins of his people that is so far beyond us that we can't even imagine it. He loved Lord is God. Even there in hell, when all they knew was wrath. My God, my God. He was singing Psalm 40 in the depths of his soul. I come to do thy will, O God. In the volume of the book it is written of me. And though I don't understand why for the moment, I love thee. Do with me what you will. May all your wrath be poured upon me. I love thee, oh my God. I come to do thy will. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. And it was at that moment when Luther knew nothing but wrath, when the favor of God was obliterated, that God in heaven said in his own heart, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God was, if I may put it that way, God was never so pleased with his Son as at that awful moment. That's the doctrine that astonished Luther when he was confronted with that. 
And he saw what that implied. He tells us himself, the gates of heaven, as it were, opened before me. He stood in total astonishment, total awe, struck by the force of it. God, abandoned by God. That was Calvary. He couldn't understand it. It was too much for him. It overwhelmed him. And it overwhelmed him with such intensity that he never forgot that moment when he stood before the cross and saw God abandoned by God. And then he saw that righteousness, justification, is by faith alone. Christ, our head, to whom we are united by faith. He rose again, and he is in heaven. That's the ground. That he did as our federal head. When Adam failed, when Adam brought us, by our own guilt, into desolation and destruction and hell that awaits us, Christ loved the Lord his God, even in hell where he suffered for your sin. And for mine. That's why we are justified. Sanctification was also accomplished in that same cross and in the same way. And now I speak of the relationship between justification and sanctification. There is an inherent connection I mentioned it in passing a few moments ago what is the effect of the cross as far as justification is concerned the righteousness of God himself was revealed in the cross this is my righteousness God said what is happening to my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. That righteousness displayed on Calvary is a righteousness that is accomplished, and that righteousness belongs to my people by divine, sovereign imputation. But righteousness, you see, is as it is in God, as it is revealed in the cross, as it is imputed to us, righteousness is perfect conformity to the holiness of God himself. God in justification declares that on the basis of the cross of Christ. But in sanctification, God realizes that in fact, so that the righteousness that is imputed to us becomes the righteousness that makes us, in all respects, conformable to his own holiness, so that we are as holy as he is. Scriptures use that, that term for righteousness. The text that comes to mind is that text where 
Jesus admonishes the disciples, let your righteousness exceed that of the scribes, the righteousness of the scribes of, and Pharisees. They had a righteousness. But as Paul points out in Romans 10, it was the righteousness of the law, which was no righteousness at all. Because although they could conform themselves outwardly to the commands of the law, in their hearts, they were adulterers and fornicators and blasphemers, and they were the ones who crucified the Lord of glory. For righteousness exceeds that, a righteousness is different from that, and it is different from that because righteousness which is ours by faith, first of all, but then also because we are made righteous. It's that work of God in sanctification whereby he conforms us by the work of the Spirit in our hearts so that we are righteous in fact, not only by divine declaration, but what God declares as the judge of all the earth. He does, in fact, he makes us righteous. Part of the image of God that was lost with Adam's sin and is given to us in Christ is righteousness, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And that's the relationship between the two. The work of justification is principally the work of sanctification. <clears throat> if there is a prisoner in prison for murder, And he's in prison for life. And the judge who has the say of his future declares him to be innocent, free from the guilt of murder. Would it be right for that judge to let him languish in a prison cell the rest of his life in spite of the fact that he has been declared innocent? Justification is to be declared innocent. Sanctification is to be released from prison. And the one follows the other in the righteousness of God. Has to. God is just and righteous. And so we are sanctified basis of righteousness. In that sense of the word, even holiness is imputed to us, given us freely by grace through the Spirit, and becomes ours by faith in Christ. By his sacrifice, he earned far, far more than the mere forgiveness of sins. He earned for us everlasting righteousness. He earned for the creation the deliverance under which it lies in bondage, so that the whole creation is delivered from the consequences of Adam's fall. His church is made glorious as God is 
But don't forget the work of sanctification does not bring us back to paradise and to Adam's state in its original perfection. Oh no, heaven awaits us. And heaven is much better than paradise was. And Adam is great and powerful man that he was. Wearing a wreath of the glory of God was but a dim shadow of what we shall be. When the work of sanctification is completed, our God does not just undo what Adam did. In his great mercy and in his great love, past finding out, he lifts us high above Adam, higher than the angels even. And as scripture so often reminds us, lest we become covetous here in the world, we shall inherit the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, with a glory brighter than the angels, a holiness that exceeds, holiness that exceeds those who live near God. For we shall see Christ face to face, and the glory revealed on Calvary will shine us. What marvelous works of God, beloved. Dwell on these things. In the night watches when you can't sleep. In the day as you go about your work. In your life and your families. Dwell on these things. Ponder them. Remember in your own mind what God has done for us. For grace, that's all. For you and I, what are we? Nothing. What a great God we have. Give praise to him. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hopeprchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.